Another acquired heart disease that happens would be rheumatic fever. This usually manifests itself within two to six weeks after an untreated beta hemolytic strep infection. This acquired heart disease could affect the aortic or mitral valves. Um, one actor that had this problem was diagnosed when he was about 12, and then he had mitral valve replacements up until the age of 51, and he continued to be monitored, and he died recently before the Oscars ceremony um, as he was getting his uh, valve replaced. So this is a lifelong complication, um, and it's very important for everyone to get their follow-ups as necessary. So how do we diagnose this? We diagnose this by drawing blood and we check the ESR and the and to see if they have an elevated ASO titer. So clinically, what would happen with this? Would they, the patient would be experiencing shortness of breath and chest pain. They may have tachycardia even while sleeping. So they may be in the hospital on a monitor. They would have joint, joint pain all over. A rash would develop very high fevers, and then nodules over bony prominences. How do we treat this issue? We kind of treat the symptoms. We allow bed rest, especially when they're febrile. We assess the cardiac system, looking for any things of cardiac distress. distress. And then we also try to keep them as calm as possible and just um, let them rest. We will treat them with penicillin or erythromycin, which are an prophylactic antibiotics. And then we give them aspirin for, um, to help with any inflammation in their system and any anticoagulation um, processes that need to take place. Once they are out of the hospital and out of treatment, we still ask them to continue antibiotics for five years if they have cardiac signs and symptoms or until they reach the age of 21 to 25 years old. If they do not have, um, I'm sorry, we ask them to do the antibiotic pr prophylaxis for five years without any cardiac signs and symptoms. And then if they have rheumatic heart disease, we ask them to do the antibiotics for 10 years after diagnosis or until they reach age 40. So the next slide would be a video of cardiac cardiomyopathy. And then your next acquired heart disease is Kawasaki's. And this disease really happens a lot to kids in California. A lot of times during the springtime, we also notice kids in Hawaii having it as well. Um, Radies has with their cardiac clinic, they also have a Kawasaki's research center. So kids who come into Radies and are treated for Kawasaki's, they have the option to sign up for the research center and come in for that center with for follow-ups for as long as they need. Even when they're maybe five or 10 years out of diagnosis, if they have a sick day and they uh, need to come in for a follow-up, they can also visit the Kawasaki Center to have um, some testing done to make sure that they're not going to redevelop symptoms of Kawasaki's this happens with generalized vasculitis in the beginning. Um, and it's the children are very, very miserable. So imagine your vascular bed in your body. So every part where you have your vascular bed is inflamed and it's very painful. So your facial, you know, like your lips, your eyes, all of that is inflamed, your throat. So the kids usually aren't swallowing. They don't want to eat. They're not swallowing their own saliva. They don't want to walk. 
the kids who were walking. They don't want to walk because it hurts for them to walk. They don't want to hold hands with their parents because their hands hurt. They don't want to eat. They don't want to use the bathroom because that hurts. So it's very painful for them. They cry a lot. It's hard for you to get an, a good IV and keep it in because of the generalized vasculitis. So it's hard for us to keep them hydrated. Um, they will have swelling of the lymph nodes. And then we just continue to monitor them. We do an echo on their heart to make sure that their heart is okay and that they're not developing any uh, clots or aneurysms. And then um, we treat them with, to keep them as comfortable as much as possible. And so uh, they will be coming back for follow-ups after this. Um, and, and this, to let you know, and make sure you wake up and write this down, Kawasaki's is the major cause of heart disease in children, according to the American Heart Association. So with congenital heart failure, we can treat the problem, we can give medications, we can fix the congenital heart defect, and the child can get better. With Kawasaki's, we only treat the symptoms and follow them, and it follows them into adulthood. So this is why this is the major cause of heart disease in children. So just make sure you understand that. And then we have so many cases diagnosed in the U.S. every year. And then um, this acquired heart disease would be a leading cause of problems with children in the U.S. and Japan. Okay. Um, here's your slide with what happens with Kawasaki syndrome. You'll see a fever greater than 102. You'll have the strawberry tongue, the red cracked lips, all of these things, cardiac complications, occasional intermittent abdominal colicky pain and then your rash. So the picture shows you very um, good pictures of what it looks like for the kids. And they're just, like I said, very, very miserable, especially the oral um, mucosa is very irritated and they just don't want to eat or drink anything. So here's a um, video on that. And then we talk about shock. You have your four types of four categories of shock. And then your hypovolemic shock is when you're losing fluids from your body for whatever reason. Um, and you have your video with that and then your cardiogenic shock. A lot of times a kid won't just go into cardiogenic shock unless what I've noticed is that they have a cardiac defect and they're in the hospital and things are just not going well for them. So they don't just usually wake up and go into cardiac defect. Um, they would have to have some type of congenital issue going on in order for them to for that to happen. And then you have your treatment of cardiogenic shock there, of course, and you have to initiate CPR right away so that the because the heart can't pump. And then you have your obstructive shock. And then um, just another video about shock. So mainly I want you just to know the four types of shock and their definition. This episode will start to talk about alterations in circulation and cardiac defects found in the pediatric patient population. The first slide gives you the five areas for listening to the heart, and All People Enjoy Time Magazine is a great mnemonic to help you understand and remember the areas for listening to aortic, pulmonic, herbs, point, tricuspid, and mitral valves. The next slide also talks about 
the normal heart sounds you will hear during auscultation. So you have your S1, which is the largest at the apex, and S2, which is which is the loudest at the base. I'm sorry, I said S1 wouldn't be largest, but it's loudest at the apex. And you should listen at the fifth intercostal space, left midclavicular line, and that's on all patients, including cardiac patients. Um, also, another mnemonic for helping helping you remember how to listen to heart sounds would be the mnemonic ape to man, which is also aortic, pulmonic, tricuspid, and mitral. Your normal heart sounds would be S1, which is a lub, which is the when the mitral and tricuspid valves close. And then your S2 would be dub, when the pulmonic and aortic valves close. Sometimes you will not hear this, and that just lets you know, hey, there's a little something going on. It could be that the patient is dehydrated and there's a slight murmur, or it could be that there is a real cardiac defect, which would be different. It could be a murmur. It could be a gallop. It could be some other difference. So as you're listening to the heart sounds and you don't hear a lub-dub, that indicates that there's actually something going on. The next slide discusses heart murmurs. And it talks about um, you may have a systolic murmur or a diastolic murmur. In pediatrics, innocent murmurs could occur um, in children because of, as I said before, they may be just dehydrated. And once we rehydrate them, they may the murmur may go away. Some kids who are found to have a murmur at birth, we may continue to monitor them and bring them at, back for certain uh, observations or workups, and then it may the murmur may go away as they continue to develop. Or it could also be found as a um, septic, septal defect in children. So you have the slide of the normal heart, and then the blood flow through the cardiac valves would be tissue paper my assets. So that's the tricuspid, pulmonic, mitral, and, aor and aortic valves. There's a couple of videos here for you to watch, the normal heart video, and then also the fetal circulation video. Because as you know, it's very important as the baby is born and the transition to life happens that the heart begins to function on its own and it's not um, dependent on the mother any longer. So you have also the anatomy and physiology with the pediatric differences. So we expect the um, ductus arteriosus to close once the lungs expand. Sometimes this could take up to three days after birth to close. Um, I believe Dr. Aliyev tells you something a little bit different, but from working in the NICU, I have noted that sometimes it does take a little longer for it to close. Um, and so, um, the cord is clamped and we have your systemic vascular resistance that helps the foramen ovale to close. So when the baby is born, also sometimes through ultrasound, we, we really monitor the vital organs, the heart being one of them. And we look to make sure that the valves are working and closing correctly. Once the baby is born and is transitioning to life, we very carefully monitor the color. You will have some times when the baby is a little bit mottled, as I call it, marbly looking, not exactly pink. And sometimes the extremities will turn blue. But if that happens for a prolonged period of time, or if you notice that there's cyanosis around the lips, the tip of the nose or the tongue, or the baby turns more blue as it's crying, then that is kind of indicative that there could be a cardiac issue going on. Also, as the baby is put on the monitors, 
for observation in the hospital and the oxygen saturations are not uh, staying up or they're not in the high 90s, then we start to worry about them as well. When the baby comes in for admission, say it's admission to the NICU or the baby has been home and is coming back for admission for observation because something the parents have decided that something doesn't seem right with the baby, then we get a history and we ask what has been going on with the feedings. Even if the baby is breastfed, we ask, um, has the baby been getting too tired or too sleepy and maybe falling off the breast or not latching properly on the breast? Um, does the baby fall asleep and not finish a complete bottle or is it huffing and puffing and head bobbing and seem like it's breathing harder, increased work of breathing as you learned before in your respiratory unit? Um, and then once we weigh this child, is there poor weight gain going on with that? Um, if, it's, if, if it hasn't gained any weight since birth or you can notice that it's very slim, lots of weight gain, like the skin is kind of hanging off the bones, or it doesn't fit into the criteria for the growth chart, then we call that failure to thrive. As I said before, are there respiratory symptoms going on? Do we notice that um, this child has a kind of like a wet cough or runny nose or sneezing a lot, things like that? would be indicative that maybe this child has um, some type of cardiac issue. I talked about cyanosis. We talk about, we call it oral cyanosis where the lips are turning blue, the tip of the nose are, is turning blue. Um, if it's a toddler or an older child, exercise intolerance, can it not keep up with the peers when they're running around, running around and this child falls back and seems to have trouble breathing, increased work of breathing. Is there a family history of any cardiac issues? Um, has it been worked up from any type of uh, syndrome genetically? Was there a recent strep infection? Because sometimes a strep infection can also cause trouble with the cardiac valves. Is this child sweating a lot, especially if it's a baby? And the mom says she put the baby down to sleep and then she now has to change the baby's clothes. And when she picks the baby up, there's a ring where the body of the baby was, then that's excessive sweating and that's caused also to suspect a cardiac issue. As we assess this child, we look at, um, is there tachycardia or bradycardia? You can put the child on the monitor or you can just count using your um, stethoscope. Do we notice tachypnea? Is there hypertension? Before we didn't really take uh, blood pressure in children, at the pediatrician's office, we just kind of did a regular assessment. Now, there was a, a couple of years ago, there was a movement to start taking routine blood pressures on children because we knew that children were walking around in a hypertensive state for a very long time. And then they were starting to have kidney disease. So now we do take blood pressure. If it's um, hypertensive, we take blood pressure in all four extremities. Sometimes as the baby is first born and it starts to show cardiac symptoms, there is an order to take blood pressure in all extremities just to see if there's differing blood pressures amongst each extremity. And then we look at the oxygen saturation. Is this showing hypoxia where it's extremely low? Some babies are born and their oxygen saturation is like 52%. So we monitor them very closely for that. And then we look at all their extremities. Um, what do their extremities look like? What is the cap refill there? Do we have pulses that are weak or bounding? Sometimes the bottom 
pulses could be very weak and the top pulses could be bounding. What's the skin temperature? Are they cold and clammy? Are they nice and warm? And as I talked about, what is the color? When we auscultate, do we hear a murmur? Do we hear gallop, um, varying heartbeat? And then you have your head to toe cardiac clues. This often is in, it goes for adults as well, but this often is in the older kids. We look at the brittle hair, the poor nutrition, swelling in their lower extremities, their abdomen. It shows ascites, and this could be indicative of right-sided heart failure. They have clubbing of the um, fingers and toes because the oxygen isn't getting all the way out to the very tip of the extremities. And then I'm going to move on to congenital heart defects. A lot of times when we see a child with a congenital heart defect, they will have increased pulse, increased respiration. They will have failure to thrive instead of growth retardation, dyspnea and orthopnea. They will be fatigued. So they're not running around acting like they have the um, activity level of a normal child. They may kind of lay around a lot, take a lot of naps and things like that. And they will always have symptoms of an upper respiratory infection, sneezing, coughing, runny nose, those types of things. Um, and the next slide talks about what's very important for you. And I want to point this out that there are 35 different types of congenital heart defects. So they fall into four different categories. And the four categories are at the bottom. And that's what I really want you to pay attention to is the main categories. I don't want you to specifically know the different types of congenital heart defects, but it's, it's just profound that there are 35 different types. And then um, a lot of these congenital heart defects could cause congestive heart failure in a child. So um, that's the reason why a child would go into congestive heart failure is because they would have a congenital heart defect. So I want you to be very clear about that. So um, manifestations of congestive heart failure would be that the infant tires very easily during feeding. They could have um, issues that seem like they're having respiratory distress or respiratory symptoms. They may have um, symptoms that look like failure to thrive, weight loss. They don't gain weight. They just stay at a certain weight for a very long time. They could be sweaty. Sometimes these infants are very, very irritable and inconsolable. And then once you get them to sleep, you don't touch them. You cluster your nursing care. You leave them alone. Because if you move and wake them up, then they're going to cry and cry and cry. Very irritable for a very long time. And it's almost like they're burning off their calories, crying so much. Um, and they do have a compromised immune system, so they will have frequent in infections. Um, to what you would notice about these infants also, and some of the older kids as well, they do have increased work of breathing. They're very short of breath. If, they, if you just basically give them a bath, it gives, gets them all worked up and they're very short of breath. You might notice some nasal flaring, some grunting, head bobbing. If you listen to their lungs, you might hear crackles. So, and they're tachypnic. Um, on exam, if they were to do uh, radiology on the chest, you might see uh, cardiomegaly. You'll definitely notice some cyanosis. And then they might have, um, be cold and clammy. I call them doughy because they're um, cold and they're, they have pallor to their skin, decreased um, cat refill, and they just uh, feel to me like dough. Um, so we 
constantly monitor them and make sure that they're doing okay. They're always on the monitor. And then we'll, as I said, do a chest X-ray and echocardiogram. We're doing, they're usually in a PICU or a NICU, some type of intensive care setting when they're admitted for a cardiac workup. We'll do a thorough head to toe assessment, focusing on their lungs and their cardiac. The physician will set parameters for them on the monitor saying oxygen can't be over this and don't let the saturation fall below that. Um, certain feeding parameters and things like that. They will get daily weights. And then um, we are to teach the parents or the caregivers about the process of their defect or their disease, what type of medications they'll be on and what other therapeutic uh, regimens we will have them on. And it could be that they're ventilated and sedated to give their body rest, or it could be that we're not feeding them and are just going to put them on um, IV enteral feedings to uh, allow them to gain weight more and not stress their body out by uh, feeding them via mouth. So here are some medications that we would use for the, the children. And then um, if this child goes home, we also have to teach the parents about the medication and how important it is to not miss a dose. And if they are um, giving digoxin to check a, an apical pulse for one minute, and if it's over 100 to hold. So this is very important because you have to remember who you're speaking with. Is, it, is there a language barrier or is there someone who you feel like doesn't have the intellect to understand this? So um, if this is going on, then this might be, and this child is really critically ill, this might be a situation where you might ask the physician to order home health nursing to go in and administer medications and check on the child for a couple of weeks until the parents can understand how to administer the medication safely. And then um, we're gonna skip over the digoxin education portion. So the treatment for congestive heart failure, we wanna unload that fluid fast. So a lot of times if the um, patient is admitted, and this is also for adults, we will wanna keep them in the upright position. Um, we're gonna give them some type of Lasix or, or something in that family to get the fluids off of them. And we're going to monitor them. So we want to decrease the fluids, decrease the afterload on their heart, restrict sodium, and then they'll be getting tests. We're going to test for digoxin level if they were on dig. We're going to do some uh, ABGs, which is arterial blood gases. And we're also going to check a potassium level because some of the medication that they may have been on if they were on medications may um, cause them to have a lower potassium level. And so here's other medications that we would use. They usually would have to um, supplement potassium or increase dietary potassium because of the medications that they're on. And we teach the parents how to watch for signs and symptoms of hypokalemia. Um, feeding strategies for infants, because they would get so tired if they do have congestive heart failure, and sometimes even just a basic congenital heart defect, is we... Um, keep it where they're not too stressed out, have them relax when they're feeding. We try to be on top of their feeding schedule so that they're not running behind and they're really, really hungry. And now they're very stressed out and screaming and crying and they can't concentrate on their feeding. So we put them in a relaxed environment. We hold them upright. Um, we try to do any kind of um, concentrating their formula if at all possible. So even if it's breast milk, we ask the mom to pump and then we will add some type of human milk fortifier or maybe even 
some type of baby formula to her milk to increase the concentration of the calories per ounce. And this allows the baby to get what they need nutritionally. Sometimes we're trying to help the baby to grow weight, gain weight and grow so that they can reach their goal of getting the cardiac procedure. Um, physicians can't operate on babies who are severely premature and who are underweight because they need them to grow to a certain weight so that they can see all of their tiny little vessels and things when they go in there to do the surgery. So um, we also give them a time limit of 30 minutes. If they can't take their feeding within 30 minutes, we will complete the rest of the feeding via a nasogastric tube. So that's every 30 minutes they will get, I mean, every three hours they will get a chance to feed 30 minutes. And then the rest of it we put through a nasogastric tube. Um, other categories of defects, we have um, categories that increase or decrease the pulmonary flow. And then we have obstructive and or mixed defects, and then those that are acquired. So um, defects with increased pulmonary blood flow would be your acyanotic congenital heart defects, which cause a left to right shunt. So these would be increased pulmonary fl blood flow, and then the baby is not turning blue, but just fatigued all the time. So your examples would be your PDA or patent ductus arteriosus, your atrial septal defect or ASD, and your VSD, which be, would be a ventricular septal defect. The VSD is one often found in a child with Down syndrome. So sometimes they have to have a little bit of a corrective surgery to fix that congenital defect. Um, as I said, some of the signs and symptoms of this would be um, increased fatigue. You may hear a murmur. They are at increased risk for endocarditis. They will definitely have congestive heart failure, and they will be um, failure to thrive on the growth chart. So um, this would require a surgical repair, or they could get a cardiac catheter procedure earlier in their childhood if we catch it early. Sometimes it's asymptomatic, and we may not notice this happening until the child develops CHF. And then if we go ahead and repair it early, the prognosis is very good. The next slide just shows you a little bit about what the normal heart looks like and then what the atrial, atrial septal defect looks like. There's a video also showing about this. And then VSD would be um, a defect in the septum wall. And then um, this one is also congenital. And it could, um, usually we monitor this patient this could close spontaneously on its own. We sometimes monitor them for one to four years to see how they're doing. If they're really, really sick and um, need more interventions, we will go ahead and surgically repair this. Um, it, they will also have CHF and then they could develop endocarditis as well. If we go ahead and treat this early, they could, um, have a good outcome. But if they have multiple defects, they um, could end up with critical, critically ill or fatality. So we watch them very carefully because this also, as I said, is common with other defects. So the slide with VSD shows you what the heart would look like. And there's also a video on that. PDA is what happens um, 
when the ductus arteriosus does not close and does not close properly after birth. So this one, um, we look at it. Sometimes the child is asymptomatic or they may develop signs of CHF later on. So this baby might get sent home and then say the parents, their first time parents, or they don't realize things are happening with this baby. And then suddenly all of a sudden the baby is really sick with CHF and has to come back to be admitted. Um, a lot of times we look at trying to close this with medication, with the, which is endomethacin. Um, sometimes if this baby, if it's a known problem and before they've been home and they've been admitted to the NICU, we go ahead and give this medication. But the risk of that is the baby hasn't had any food on its stomach and endomethacin is in the category with NSAIDs. So we have to watch um, for bowel perforation in these patients um, because it's it could be a, a very big risk for bowel perforation. So hopefully the baby can have some medication to have the stomach protected and we don't have to go in for another surgery for a bowel perforation. Um, sometimes we do have to go ahead and do a PD ligation via cardiac catheter. And that's um, usually one of the other preferred methods to help with this. So the next slide shows you the patent ductus arteriosus and you have a video to watch for that. And then we are going to decrease the uh, pulmonary blood flow defects. So you have your cyanotic congenital heart, which the it causes a right to left shunt. And this one with cyanotic congenital defects, the baby will turn blue and they will have decreased pulmonary blood flow. So examples of these defects would be tetralogy of Fallot, a tricuspid atresia. Symptoms that you will notice with these kids are they will have cyanosis, they will have clubbing, they may have um, syncope, which is uh, spells of fainting suddenly, and you will also notice them just naturally squatting, and this is to help shunt the blood flow back up to their vital organs. And so um, they, this tetralogy of Fallot comes with four congenital defects. So you'll have a VSD, a pulmonic stenosis, an overriding aorta, and a right ventricular hypertrophy. So this is one that needs surgical intervention right away. Um, this baby will stay in the NICU or the hospital for quite a long time. It gets fixed in stages. So um, I talked to you about the signs and symptoms the tet spells or the blue spells, the clubbing of the fingers, they will be failure to thrive. You will hear a murmur and they will be tired and cranky a lot of the times. Um, the slide with the baby showing the tet spell, that looks minor to me. I've seen kids turn completely blue um, when they're crying or you know just having a fit. The next slide will show you the um, normal heart versus the tetralogy of Fallot heart. Um, treatment for this would be a surgical repair for the defects between six months and one year of age, as long as the child is stable. And then we do the ventricular septal defect with a patch. And then um, we do the rest of it in stages. It just depends on how stable the child is from surgery to surgery. And barring that they have no issues such as uh, um, any infections or anything like that. So we have videos of tetralogy of Fallot. Pulmonic stenosis is a stiffening of the pulmonic valves. And this could cause a lot of trouble too. Um, the patient would be at risk for 
endocarditis, and of course, CHF. Um, usually they have a good prognosis, but this is one of the other things that's often seen with um, Tetralogy of Fallot. You have your defects with mixed blood um, flow. So you have your four T's, which would be Tetralogy of Fallot, Tricuspid Atresia, Transposition of the Great Arteries, and Truncus Arteriosus. So transposition of the great arteries is just basically when the plumbing is mixed up and they'll have to do a switch procedure to fix that. Symptoms of TGA would be the work of breathing would be increased. So you have your rapid breathing, your labored breathing, you have a rapid heart rate, cool, clammy skin. So they look like they're about to go into respiratory distress, basically. Your heart sounds will vary. And as I said, treatment for this would be a switch procedure. Um, you have your video and then your picture of normal versus uh, TGA. And then your truncus arteriosus would ju is just one main vessel. So um, this definitely requires a surgical procedure. And then um, the uh, only the large VSD in this situation will allow for survival after birth. So a lot of times they may tell the parents of a, a baby born with truncus arteriosus that they're not compatible with life. They'll do the best they can to help stabilize this baby just to make sure um, that they, to see how long they, they're going to do without any surgical intervention and how long they can keep them stable before they make decisions and um, they'll have a care conference with the parents and things like that. Um, obstructive defects, so the blood can't get out to the body. So we have coarctation of the aorta, which is narrowing of the aorta. You may see um, CHF with this patient, but the big thing with these patients are that we look, we really closely monitor them for aneurysms or strokes. They can go to the cath lab for a surgical repair. Um, usually this is a good prognosis if we treat it early. You have your pictures and your video for that. And then we have hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which means the left side of the heart doesn't develop as it should. Sometimes it just comes out as just a little lobe. And so um, we worry about these kids. Sometimes they say that they aren't compatible with life, but new research has led to other things. Sometimes they will go ahead and work them up for, to put them on the transplant list, but there are some who don't ever get the transplant. So um, they're working on other things with them putting the left, the um, LVAD, the left ventricular assist device with some of these babies has helped them with their survival rates. So. Um, We'll usually notice a malcyanosis with them. Um, and then we have to keep that uh, ductus open to help with the blood flow and everything. And then they require, of course, ventilation support. They will need surgery and a transplant. And this type of situation does lead to higher mortality rates. So there's a video there about, about hypoplastic left heart. And now you have your acquired diseases. So this is be, this would be a disease that you're not born with. It's something that happens is from some type of infection or something that you um, acquire from like a community-born illness. So um, you have cardiomyopathy, and that's a disease of the heart muscle. It causes the heart to lose its ability to pump blood effectively. So one of the new things that I've heard about is that um, with kids who have been stricken with COVID, they are seeing them have um, different problems with their vessels. 
also and leading to cardiomyopathy. So this could cause, um, because it's a viral infection, and this could cause their heart rhythms to be disturbed, arrhythmias, different blood clots to form and things like that. Sometimes we don't know the exact cause and it could sometimes lead to um, death if we don't catch it quick enough. So it's, um, as I said, it could be the result of a viral infection, um, congenital defects, nutritional deficiencies. A lot of times um, teen children who do the uh, anorexia and then bulimia situation, they may go into um, having cardiomyopathy. Chemotherapies, some chemotherapies also would cause this situation to happen. So um, also genetics, it could happen that way. But for the most part, we just don't know we just try to treat the child as much as as good as possible with that. 